You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Caroline Hyde's off today. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up on the program, full earnings coverage ahead. Lyft falls after the ride-sharing company reported its slowest revenue growth in two years. Plus, we sit down with GM President Mark Royce as the company unveils its first all-electric Escalade IQ. And Amazon is in talks to be an anchor investor in Arms IPO in a deal that could raise as much as $10 billion for the chip company. Those are our top stories first. A check on the markets. Tech is lower at the index level. The Nasdaq 100 down more than a percentage point. It is chip stocks where we're seeing the biggest declines. The Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, or SOX, softer by 1.6%, underperforming the market. We're waiting for the CPI print here in the U.S. Thursday. We look at that data and then we think to ourselves, what will the Federal Reserve do next? And there is some posturing in the market from that point of view. But earnings is going to be a really big theme of this show. We have a number of earnings interviews with CEOs. And actually, the reaction to earnings to the downside also a factor, particularly for the Nasdaq 100. The U.S. 10-year yield continues to go back down towards 4%. Remember, we've been talking about the steady trickle down from 4.2% back nearer to 4%. And Bitcoin still at that same $29,500 US per token level. These are the two key names where we're starting the show. Lyft, first of all, is going to be one we're going to get to in just a moment with Mandeep Singh of BI. Rivian is down 7.5%. The EV may actually updated its production guidance for the year and lowered its guidance for an adjusted loss to $4.2 billion. But there's something that the street doesn't like. We speak to CEO RJ Scaringer, we ask, why didn't they do more in terms of raising guidance? Then you got Lyft. The story is that growth is the slowest since the pandemic era. They actually gave a pretty strong outlook for the current quarter. There are some other concerns, though, there about Lyft versus its peers. This is the reaction. Credit Suisse keeps an outperform rating on the shares, but it's lowered its price target to $18 from $23 following those results. What it sees is revenue offset by higher insurance costs going into 2024 and beyond. That's something we've talked about before. Let's break it all down with Bloomberg Intelligence senior analyst Mandeep Singh. The thing is, Mandeep, Lyft's growth is below that of the rest of the rideshare industry. How much is that a concern? 
Well, I mean, that's where when you look at all the marketplaces, the scale marketplaces like Booking, like Airbnb, you know, it's a winner-take-all uh, market. And, and I feel it's going to pan out the same way in this case simply because Lyft doesn't have a differentiated offering when it comes to ride-sharing. I mean, consumers are price-sensitive. They're going to go with, you know, the company that has the lower ETAs, that has more variety in terms of the products it's offering. And uh, over time, you know, when you look at Lyft's strategy around lowering its prices, you have to ask yourself, what can they accomplish? It's, they're not going to get an Amazon like a subscription model where they have a prime subscription and uh, you know that's how you drive engagement. And that's where I feel like uh, they're going to be uh, short-sighted in terms of using pricing as a lever. And uh, uh, the, the marketplaces with the most supply growth eventually are the ones that you know uh, end up winning. And, and that's where Uber has an advantage. We're just showing a chart on the screen that active riders actually grew in the quarter. What are we learning from Lyft about their business in the sense of engagement? You know, are riders broadly coming back? They are coming back, but when you compare it to pre-pandemic levels, they're still not there. And all this is driven by subsidies. We know the biggest problem with this business model is the use of subsidies and how it affected the unit economics. It's the same thing here. Yes, you're going to bring uh, those customers back, but how long are they going to stay? And what is the repeat rate when it comes to you know, driving the transactions uh, on, on a recurring basis? And I think that's where if uh, Lyft raises prices or Uber lowers its prices, those customers are going to go back. And the retention level is fairly low at this point of time, I feel. Mandeep, David Risha, the CEO, told Bloomberg in an interview that he's trying to make Lyft a healthier business, you know, move prices more in line with market. He only just joined in April. What's your assessment of the job he's done and what he can do, really, to change the fortunes of the company? Yeah, and uh, the good thing is I feel he's been open-minded about all the strategic options, even you know uh, the company being up for sale. And when you look at the history of marketplaces, the distant second ones, whether it was Grubhub or Postmates or Caviar, these were all the small players. They got taken out. And so in Lyft's case, clearly, you know, that is an option. The valuation is right now at its lowest level. You know, it's trading at one-time sales. And uh, probably a B2B partnership could be a catalyst. So there are a number of catalysts for them to, you know, uh, think of the next steps. Clearly, I think from a standalone perspective, it's a hard job. But at least I, I feel he's uh, quite open-minded about the various options on the table. All right, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst Mandeep Singh. If you're a rider or even a driver for Lyft and you've got a view, reach out to me on social media. The other stock we're watching, Rivian. Rivian's leader doesn't see a need to raise capital before the end of 2025, even as the company pursues some costly projects. I talked to the EV maker's CEO, RJ Scarringe, a day after the company reported better than expected earnings as it works through those supply chain snags and accelerates EV production. Have a listen. Ultimately, when we think about the path to the positive gross margin, ultimately the path to profitability of business, we have a very clear line of sight as we now have predictability in our production ramp and we have really tight predictability around the supply chain and the contractual cost reductions uh, that we're going to start to see. We're already witnessing those as, as evidenced by the numbers we, we put up yesterday. So we, we're, we're looking with a lot of excitement towards the next several quarters 
as, as we march and, and run, I should say, as fast as we can towards profitability. And that ultimately is, is the, the long-term necessity for the business is to self-finance our growth. Now, with that said, um, we've been also very clear that our cash balance, and as you alluded to in your question, puts us in a position to be able to focus uh, appropriately on, on the long term as well, meaning uh, while we're very, very focused on ramping R1 and the EDV and, and driving those to the, you know, the normal facility to 25% gross margin, uh, we're also developing and, and proceeding with the R2 program. And it's making great progress. Uh, I don't think I've been as excited as I am about R2 as I've ever been on a product. So we're looking forward to showing that. But the cash balance we've put ourselves, or the cash that we have has put ourselves in a position uh, to not need uh, capital uh, through the end of 2025. You have the infrastructure to service the Amazon EDV. Does that mean you can now start shipping R1 to Europe because that infrastructure is in place? Today, we're focused in the immediate term on continuing to ramp sales and deliveries in North America. We have, we have so much demand backlog. We have so many customers that very much uh, are looking forward to their vehicles. That that's that is the focus, and when we think about really going heavily into Europe, the R2 program uh, and that platform uh, contemplates uh, really a, a significant uh, market entry, and we think a really nice market fit. Um, so so that's something that over the next few years uh, will become a really important market for us. You've talked a lot about trying to get out of the exclusivity agreement with Amazon. The other big question that that your Rivian followers have is what type of deal would you do next? Would you go for the big fleet operators like UPS or FedEx, or will you try to do many different deals with smaller mum and pop shops, uh, smaller fleet operators? There's elements of both, and we're seeing a broad spectrum of use cases from pure last mile delivery uh, to more of a commercial van application. And so we're navigating that as we speak in terms of selecting you know, following our, our Amazon relationship, what are the next big customers, and then how do those sequence in together? And a lot of it ties to use case uh, and trying to, to minimize the amount of complexity we add to the business by having similar use cases with the, the follow-on, immediate follow-on customers. And then over time, we'll broaden the use cases, of course, as a platform and as an architecture, what we call the Rivian commercial van platform. Uh, it's designed long-term to cover a very broad spectrum of, yes. of use cases. That was Rivian CEO RJ Scarin speaking to me earlier. Look at the shares. We're down more than 8%, but off-session lows. If we close at this level of decline, down more than 8%, it's the biggest drop since March. They raised guidance to 52,000 units this year. But that's only 2,000 more than they previously said. And there are people out there in the market saying, really, guys, come on. Because the, the, the plant in normal Illinois on paper can build many more electric vehicles than that. Even so, big focus on cost cuts, and they're doing well compared to some of those other names out there in the EV space. Speaking of, coming up here on the program, we sit down with GM President Mark Royce as General Motors unveils its first all-electric Escalade IQ. That conversation coming out, out from the East Coast here on Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. 
That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome to our Bloomberg television and radio audience worldwide. General Motors unveiling its first all-electric 2025 Escalade IQ. Let's send it over to Bloomberg's Matt Miller, who's sitting down with General Motors President Mark Royce. Matt. Ed, thanks very much. Mark, we really appreciate you joining us. This is a, a very powerful vehicle with 450 miles range, but also a very high price tag. Who are you aiming this product at? Well, if we look at the current Escalade, you know, we sold over a million units, and we, we you know, one out of every three of these uh, SUVs in this um, luxury segment is an Escalade. So we've got a very successful brand. Um, it's been, you know, an unbelievable vehicle for Cadillac and General Motors, but um, this is added to business. So we know there's people that um, are wanting an electric um, three-row SUV, full-size SUV. We're going to be the first ones to really bring it here uh, with an iconic brand. So we know this is uh, in addition to our internal combustion en engine uh, Escalade. And you can see it as the next step in the design language for Cadillac, both inside and out. And so this is going to be you know, right on the, on the cutting edge of everything. It's, it's the Escalade uh, standard of the world. It really is. So you already have the Hummer, though which is de definitely on the cutting edge of everything, right? And early adopters who are waiting for a big electric vehicle, I'm assuming went out and got that. Um, who's left to, to buy the Escalade at 130000 to start? Yeah, I was going to say, well, the Ultimate platform here that we're talking about is very flexible, and it's very different than the SUV offered from Hummer. And so you'll see it in the, um, the proportions here uh, where we, we really are going after efficiency with 455 miles of range. That's a big deal um, for families and people who, who travel. Um, so it's a, it's a big range vehicle, but it's also 750 horsepower. Um, the, the Hummers are in the 1,000 horsepower stand, you know, the, in that part of, the, part of the market there. So it's a little bit different uh, customer. It's very different from a duty cycle standpoint. But
but it's still built on the 24 mod pack that we use on our battery electric truck platforms. There has been some criticism about these big uh, battery packs. Um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, for example, wrote that um, you're using a lot of lithium that maybe should be left for the smaller electric vehicles. How do you respond to that? Uh, well, General Motors is going to make both, number one. So we're going to make everything from the Bolt with an LTM-based um, pack here as we bring it back online um, to the Equinox, to the Blazer. So those are right in the biggest segments uh, in the world at price points that are um, you know, the most affordable uh, right in the wheelhouse of, the, of those big volume segments. So we're going to do that too, but um, you know, technology changes. And so anybody that thinks that we're going to have the same technology even a year from now, chemistry-wise, uh, with um, our battery systems across the whole industry um, isn't thinking about it quite right. Um, I think it's been mentioned before that uh, the telecommunications industry, there was all these people that were fearful of, of copper, right? Um, that all changed, right? And so you get into silicon, you get into chips, you get into all those things that are new technologies on a breaking transformation of the industry. And I can tell you the history books will see this as just the first step. All right, we're talking again with Mark Royce, president of General Motors, at the introduction of their brand new, Cadillac's brand new uh, EV Escalade IQ. And, you know, I have driven the Escalade, uh, the V, with also about 700 horsepower, right? It's got a big V8, eats up a lot of gas. That's the problem you're trying to solve with this, but there are still gonna be people out there who want the V8. How long are you gonna sell um, the internal combustion engine Escalade next to the Escalade IQ? Well, you know, they're very different vehicles, again, um, in terms of the package. You know, we've got a huge amount of storage in this vehicle because of what we have up front um, where the engine used to be, and then also um, a longer wheelbase and the second row package is quite different too. So you add those things together. They're different vehicles, even though sort of the output on the power basis are similar. Um, we're going to do both when, as long as people want both. And so, you know, if you look at this over the long-term horizon, the market and the customer, um, we haven't sold a vehicle like this ever. The market has never seen a vehicle like this. This is the first standard of the world. And so we're going to see what people do. You are going to bring out the Silverado um, with, I believe, a similar battery pack and range, at least as as an option. Um, are you seeing price pressure because we're now seeing Ford capitulate and cut prices, Tesla obviously driving that. How do you expect the pricing to work out? Well, the pricing, uh, we're starting with the Silverado with our work truck. So, um, you know, our, our, our pricing and our ladders and our battery capacity and range capacity and duty cycle capacity on Silverado and Sierra are going to be for everybody's pocketbook and price point. So, you know, we know where uh, people want it from a work truck in our fleet standpoint. And then it'll it'll go all the way up through the RST, which will, you know, again, be a, a high range, high module, but you don't have to just do that. So we're going to offer those things as options. Cutting price, though, means that we didn't see it right. Um, and I don't think that's true. I think we're right in that wheelhouse of what people can afford and want. And so, you know, I, I feel good about our pricing. Are, are these vehicles going to be profitable when you start selling them? Uh, yes. And are you going to be able to make uh, a million of them in 2025? Not not the Escalade IQ. No, I just mean make a million electric of them. vehicles. Yeah, electric, electric vehicles. vehicles. Yeah, I think so. I think we're well on our track. You know, um, uh, we're well. We, we did 50,000 here uh, first half of the year. That was our, our our target, and we did that. Um, you you got to bring cell plants along um, online as you do the assembly plants to make these. Um, our first plant in Lordstown, Ohio, is now full capacity and running really well. Um, the second one will be in Spring Hill, Tennessee. 
um, right next to our Lyric um, uh, facility there. So that's coming online next. And the third one will be um, in Lansing, Michigan. And we're just um, you know doing the construction on that right now. So once we get past the first plant in Lordstown, Ohio, we learn how to make them. Um, we do it at, at volume. Um, we duplicate that uh, in, in Spring Hill, and we duplicate that in Lansing. So the first ones out here, we knew were going to be um, you know something that we'd never done before, and we tackled that, and we're doing it with high quality, and we're doing it rates. So um, those are you know that's how you get into volume production. I got to ask about the negotiations with the UAW. Um, are you prepared to make an expensive investment in raising those costs because their demands are, I think uh, they said, pretty audacious? Yeah, I can't comment on um, what people say or, or don't say about that. We are um, negotiating with our represented workforce uh, in earnest, as we always do. And we're, we're there to make a, a good agreement, a fair agreement, an agreement that works for everybody. And that's all I have to say. Mark, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Mark Thank you, Royce, Matt. Always a pleasure. Thank president you. of General Motors, talking to us about Cadillac's new uh, Escalade IQ. Ed? Bloomberg's Matt Miller, thank you very much. Okay, time for work shifting, where we look at the changing landscape of the labor market amid advances in technology. First up, WeWork is saying there's substantial doubt that the co-working startup will be able to stay in business. The New York-based company is bleeding cash and customers of its office rentals are canceling their memberships in droves. Plus, overnight, SoftBank drops as much as 4.6%, the most since May, after it reported an unexpected net loss for the latest quarter and refrained from announcing any plans to buy back shares. The company also said, by the way, it's cautiously resuming investments to capitalize on opportunities in AI and other emerging technologies. And the U.S. Commerce Department has received more than 460 statements for projects seeking federal funds from last year's Chips and Science Act. Proposals to the department's office will compete for some of the $39 billion in direct funding and $75 billion in loans under the law, which is aimed at reducing U.S. reliance on Asia's semiconductor supply chains and, of course, boosting domestic manufacturing of chip technology. All right, sticking with commerce, Amazon in talks to join other tech companies as an anchor investor in ARM's initial public offering that could raise as much as $10 billion. That's according to a Bloomberg source. ARM is the chip designer that counts the world's biggest tech firms as some of its clients. It's also held discussions, as we've reported, with Intel and NVIDIA. Joining us for more, Bloomberg Technology Executive Editor Tom Giles. This is an interesting one. I guess the, the obvious question is, why would Amazon be an anchor investor in ARM? I got one word for you, 250 billion chips. That's how many chips ARM has designed over the years. ARM is an incredible player, incredibly important player in the design of chips. In particular, it's a leader in designing chips that are used in the data centers that are running all the all this computing power that Amazon Web Services is behind. The, the data centers that run things like Azure for Microsoft, the data centers that work for Google, for example. These are the kinds of chips that 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 uh, that uh, ARM is behind and 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 companies like NVIDIA, Intel, and Amazon want a piece of that. That's why there's so much interest in the ARM IPO right now. Amazon uses, for example, ARM's designs in the Graviton server chip that you talked about. Uh, 
one of the best stories in covering technology is always the big IPO. Right. And this feels like the big IPO of 2023. We're waiting on oh, it. Huge. Huge. And the, the anchor investors are notable. NVIDIA, Intel, they're obviously chip makers as well. What's the vibe in the newsroom about this one? What are we trying to learn about Well, it? we're in this like incredible lull for IPOs right now. And if ARM gets to market around the September timeframe, as we've been hearing and reporting, it's going to be a huge turning point, right, for the IPO market, which has been moribund for a very long time. We haven't seen much. This would be not just an, an important IPO, but a very big IPO, the likes of which we haven't seen since Facebook many, many years ago, uh, uh, and also um, Alibaba from right. China. So it's been a long time since we've seen uh, IPOs of this size, and it would be a big shot in the arm for this market. In, you know, we've been talking about Rivian on the show today. That was the last big IPO I covered in 2021, and Amazon, one of the anchor investors in that. Bloomberg's Tom Giles, executive editor. Thank you. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. Straight back to the earnings story. These are the two names that we're watching. Akamai, Marketa, both moving to the upside. Both CEOs join us on the program now. Starting with Akamai, infrastructure software company out with second quarter results that beat expectations. The company also raising its full year forecast. Joining us now to discuss CEO and co-founder Tom Layton. Let's start with the guidance, right? You're going from, it's a slight raise, the latest being 12 to 14%. What gave you the confidence to do that, first of all? And could you have gone even higher? There's a lot of demand for our security solutions. Uh, we have the market leading products for web app firewall and bot management. And uh, we're really seeing strong demand for our market leading solutions to stop ransomware and data exfiltration. That's in the micro segmentation area. And so that's led to increased confidence for how the security product group will do this year. We're also really thrilled to see we're back in double digit earnings growth now, uh, which was a very nice place to be. A number of analysts noting that you've kind of outperformed for a few quarters now, but particularly the security story is gaining momentum. What is the motivation for customers to spend to commit their investment on the security side? Yeah, good question. Uh, you know, across the landscape, uh, there's challenging economic conditions. And so spend is not easy to come by for most enterprises, but they need to have security. Uh, they can't uh, afford to have a major ransomware incident or data exfiltration problem. And Akamai has the leading solutions to protect them. So that's, I think, driving uh, a lot of the business. Also, I, I think going forward, as you see the advances with Gen AI, uh, that is going to give an asymmetric advantage to the attacker. Uh, you know, we, we've seen now with, you know, the tools that have been developed, you know, fraud GPT, worm GPT, dark Bart, all that stuff makes it a lot easier to make very malicious bots and to morph the malware. Uh, it's going to be easier to get around the traditional security defenses. And uh, so that's why being able to have that second line of defense inside an enterprise is, is so much more important now to, to know when you've been penetrated and to isolate it and to stop it from spreading before you get real damage. 
you raise a point that many in your industry have, going all the way back to the RSA conference earlier in the year. Generative AI and quantum computing are just as much of a tool for the threat actors as they are as part of your defense strategy. And I wondered if you could just give us a little bit of insight into how seriously your customers take that. Do they acknowledge that there is a technological competence of the threats they face? I think quantum computing isn't an issue yet. Uh, but uh, Gen AI is becoming one. And uh, I, I think, you know, the realization is beginning to, to set in. You know, with any big technical advance, and Gen AI qualifies, you get a lot of good and, and some bad. And in this case, you know, it's an asymmetric advantage to the attacker uh, when it comes to trying to get past an enterprise's defenses. And so I, I think probably we're on the cusp of seeing a lot more attacks and a lot more effective attacks. Uh, and so, yeah, enterprises are concerned. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on inside your company. You've cut costs. The street's really happy with your performance. But what other changes are you making internally and what other investments might you make? Yeah, I think the next frontier in security is API security. Uh, we're making a lot of investments there. I think we're in a really good position uh, to be able to help enterprises, and they are asking for help. Uh, pretty much all the major enterprises know they've got a problem now with all the reliance on APIs and not having them having them adequately secured. Also, uh, we're making large investments in our infrastructure as a service business, cloud computing, uh, and you know, with the idea that you know we're going to be able to spin up an enterprise containers and VMs in literally hundreds of places, which they can't do today. And that will let them get much closer to the end user and have better performance. And you know, by using our other capabilities that came from our delivery business, we think we can do that at lower cost than they're spending today with the hyperscalers. In many cases, you know, the hyperscalers are their competitor. And Akamai will you know, be their partner. All right, Akamai shares up more than 9% on an intraday basis, tracking for their biggest gain since May, highest level since May of 2022. At one point in the session, we were up 13%, which would be the biggest jump going back to October of 2018. Akamai CEO Tom Layton, thank you very much. Another big name that we're tracking, analysts quite pleased after commerce payments platform Marketa reported second quarter revenues that beat estimates. Shares surging after the company renewed a partnership with Block to continue powering its popular cash app card product. And during the earnings call, there was talk of expanding its services to other markets. A lot to unpack. Who better to do it with than Marketa CEO Simon Kalaf? You know, analysts note that the getting the deal done with Block, Simon, extending, removes an overhang on the stock. But what does it actually do for your company? What kind of visibility do you now have in terms of your own growth and ability to improve the business? Uh, first, uh, thanks for having me and having Marketa on, on your show. Uh, indeed, uh, the analysts are actually excited about multiple things. It's not just the, the renewal of the Cash App contract. Uh, we did actually beat earnings. Uh, we renewed the Cash App. But actually, what they're excited about is that embedded finance is now a real thing. It's no longer like a buzzword or uh, or a pivot of fintech and dislocating fintech from crypto. It's actually a real thing. 
It is making a big difference in consumers' lives. And also they recognize the role Marketa is playing in embedded finance. In fact, seven out of 10 Americans are using a, a fintech or an embedded finance product that is built on top of Marketa. I think that's what's driving uh, the excitement. Simon, what does this four years more with Block actually give you? It gives us the ability uh, to continue to innovate with Cash App. I think the phenomenal success that Cash has achieved, uh, and it was beyond anybody's expectation, is a combination of a phenomenal theme at Cash App that read the mind of the American consumer. They want a seamless banking experience or banking-like experience that resembles the ease of use of, of, of TikTok, of YouTube, uh, or, or something that is not a banking product. They want a product that, that, that consumers love. And also, uh, it is the result of them working with players like us that obfuscate the complexity of the banking and financial system. So that relationship has led to the phenomenal growth. And now we extend that over the next four years. It gives both companies the ability to continue to innovate. We actually continue to obfuscate the complexity of the, of the system, and cash continues to innovate and take this to more and more consumers. So it gives predictability uh, for us as a company and give us a nice baseline uh, to grow from. Is there other things you can do with Block to diversify Marketa f- further? There are so many things we can do with Block. Block is a phenomenal company. I mean, as they've announced, they have, a, I'd say, a, a, like a low 20 million cards out there. Uh, they're growing so fast, uh, but only a few percentage of, of uh, those card holders are putting the paycheck on the cash app. That could be extended. Uh, we, as a company, Marketa, have had phenomenal success with accelerated wage access, working with shift and gig workers for them to make their money instantly without burdening the working capital at a company. That is something that Cash App can do very, very successfully. It actually speaks to the audience. It speaks to their install base. So there's so many things we can do with Block. In terms of doing those things, who do you phone? I mean, my real question is, what's it like to do business with Jack Dorsey? Is he actually sort of engaged and active at Block and in your relationship with Marketa? We don't comment on who we work with at Block. We work with many divisions of Block. But, but I would say that, that we have a phenomenal relationship. It feels like it's one team. And that's what it takes these days. Uh, we no longer live in a world if you just have an API and everybody goes in, in their own direction. Uh, we actually work with them. We partner with them. And the nice thing is everybody has their lane. Uh, so they're phenomenal at, at innovation, understanding the consumer, delivering to the consumer, and we're really good at obfuscating the complexities of the banking system, allowing them to move very fast on the consumer side while, while we actually focus on eliminating complexity of the banking system. It's been a pleasure working with that team over there. Uh, before we let you go, Simon, t- two countries associated with Marketa right now or regions are sort of Brazil, LATAM, and, and Eastern Europe. Where are you looking to expand geographically? What are the next market opportunities for you? 
Yes, we, we definitely see Brazil as a phenomenal opportunity for us. Uh, we, we just announced our partner and customer FitBank. Uh, we, we see tremendous opportunity. It is actually uh, one of the fastest growing fintech uh, markets. Everybody's on a mobile device. The, the technology is accepted. It, it's a large country. Regulatory environments are are, 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 are are favorable. So we're very excited about that. And in Europe, we've seen a lot of a lot of interest and a lot of excitement. And we've closed quite a few uh, net new logos uh, in, in Europe. So we are expanding into the EU and very excited about that. I mean, look, it's a global world. We have a lot of customers that have global ambitions. And Marketa is going to stand behind them. If they tell us they're going to go to the moon, we're going to be in the moon before them. So we're very excited to, uh, for the deep relationship we have with our customers. All right, Simon Calafsi of Marketa coming to me from over the Bay Bridge over in Oakland. Thank you very much. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, we're going to talk about the rise of generative AI and its impact on the European VC ecosystem. That's with Target Global coming up next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's talk about generative AI and its impact on global VC. But what does it mean in particular for European tech and European VC? Let's discuss with Shmuel Chafetz for today's VC Spotlight. He's the founder and executive chairman of the pan-European VC firm Target Global. We've talked a lot here in the United States about the starting gun of last November, everything that's been happening in new companies being founded in the field of generative AI. 
Is that playing out in the countries and regions of Europe that you're looking at? Yeah, so first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I think it's playing out globally, um, obviously, and I think Europe is, uh, it's hard to, to set the boundaries right now on, on this type of technology, but I think it's also very easy to overestimate the short-term impact that this is gonna have and grossly underestimate the long-term impact. And I think um, that's the one thing that you have to uh, to really consider when you're thinking about generative AI and, and what's going on in the market today. There's this idea that here in San Francisco, where I am, a lot of new AI and, and software-focused companies are being started because of the historic relationship with Stanford. Are there any cities in Europe where you recognize there is a conveyor belt of talent coming out? I mean, I think Europe, one of the interesting things about European tech, generally speaking, is it's much more distributed than U.S. tech. So I think everybody always tries to find the Silicon Valley of Europe, of China, of, and I think that's not, a, not the right comparison. I think the, the beautiful thing is that Europe has about 65 cities that have a unicorn. There is a very, uh, the ecosystem is very spread out, and it means that things can grow in, in uh, very unusual places. So, of course, you see London, Berlin, Tel Aviv being uh, major hubs, but you really see incredible companies growing everywhere, and that includes uh, you know, Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, so places like Spain, Poland, uh, Romania, and, and that's, that's the challenge about investing in Europe, but that's also a great opportunity. You're usually based in, in Tel Aviv, Israel. The, the recent news flow, and indeed we had a, an interview with Benjamin Netanyahu here on Bloomberg Television at the weekend, is around the judicial ruling. Have you reconsidered how you view Israeli tech and the startups in, in, your, in your home nation? Uh, well, I think uh, this is obviously, uh, for, for us, it's not a business question. It's a, it's a deeper question about the heart and soul of, of our country. Um, but, as, and, but as an investor, of course, it's hard to completely ignore it. Um, I think Israel still has incredible talent, um, a depth of innovation, and I think eventually um, the industry will uh, will prevail as the country will. Um, and I think one of the amazing things to see is how the um, the tech industry and the VC industry are really in the forefront of the uh, civil society uh, in this. And, and you know, it's people talk a lot about ESG, but this is actual ESG in the in the streets. You know, in and it's, it's, to me, it's amazing. On this program, we've had founders from Israel from a really broad range of industries, from self-driving to software, um, fintech as well. Are there any sort of subsectors in, in the nation that you think are a strong point right now? So cybersecurity is always extraordinarily interesting in Israel, and uh, there's a couple of uh, companies being sold now. Um, there's, I think you saw uh, Wiz highlighted in Forbes just now. So there's a lot of great things happening in cyber, and I think Israel is well positioned around AI, um, around not necessarily the core, not maybe not the protocols, but a lot of the applications, data, data security, data integrity. Um, and identity management, a lot of those things are things that um, Israeli tech knows how to do and knows how to do well. So I think it is very well positioned. One of the big stories of the day, Shmuel, is, is ARM. Constant news flow about its listing here in the United States. How much of a blow is it to European tech, or the UK even, that ARM elected to list here in, in the States and not in continental Europe or in the London markets? 
I mean, it's, it's a great question. I uh, honestly tend to think that um, listing in, the listing venue is a bit of a political question. It's a political question. It's a PR question. I don't think it's material. I think what matters is that Arm is a UK company headquartered in Cambridge. What matters is that it continues to do business in the UK, continues to have its IP in the UK, continues to employ and train engineers in the UK and be uh, a British company in the forefront of global technology and continue to grow. Where it's listed, where the shares are traded, where the financial engineering happens, I think it's there, you cannot ignore the fact that it's easier to do it in New York, um, there's more scale there, and it's easier for investors that look at global tech to look at one market. Um, and I, I tend to think it's not a blow at all. I think it's an amazing um, outcome for the British ecosystem and for Europe to have a company like Arm, and hopefully it'll be another $100 billion European company. There aren't, uh, there aren't enough of those. All right, Shmuel Chafetz, founder and executive chairman of Target Global. In today's VC Spotlight, great to get more on the European perspective. All right, this is what they're talking about. ESPN has signed a long-term exclusive agreement with casino operator Penn Entertainment, licensing its brand for sports betting and deepening the media giant's ties to the growing online gambling business. Penn will have the 10-year right to use the ESPN bet name in the U.S., the company said in a statement Tuesday. Penn will rebrand its Barstool Sportsbook with ESPN starting this fall. Penn also said it's selling all of its Barstool Sports subsidiary to... David Portnoy, which is what they're talking about on the social medias. Let's look ahead now to Disney's earnings coming out later today with our editor, Chris Palmieri. So after the drama of Iger's contract renewal, we go back to the existential question that you and I posed around Sun Valley. How do you become profitable in streaming? I think that's what investors are looking for. It is. Uh, well, you know, one way is deals like this one. I was a little surprised the market reaction uh, to the Penn Gaming deal, uh, $1.5 billion guaranteed money for Disney slash ESPN. Uh, and, um, and they can still, uh, according to Penn on their call, uh, have ads from other sports betting companies on ESPN. Uh, so nothing really kind of but upside, it seems, in this deal. And that's sort of how you invigorate a legacy brand like ESPN, which is, you know, is, is struggling uh, with losing traditional cable subscribers. So I'm sure Iger's going to talk a, a lot about that deal on the call and likely we'll get some questions. Uh, broader, you know, what we've seen this earnings cycle is, after all, the pessimism about the legacy media businesses. A lot of these companies have surprised profit-wise. Warner Brothers, Paramount, uh, you know, their, their advertising business on traditional TV channels is challenged, but they've cut a lot of costs and they're saving a lot of money with the strikes. And so the numbers have tended to look better. You know, the ESPN pen deal, I wonder how much of Iger's fingerprints are on it specifically. Because the other question a lot of people are asking is, when do we see the full Iger effect? What's he going to do to restructure Disney's businesses? Well, that's one of the things people will be looking since they, they did a lot of cost cutting. As you know, earlier this year, 7,000 jobs, uh, $5 billion plus uh, you know, in savings they were looking for. So may get an update on that. Uh, this is definitely an Iger deal. If you remember the history of the sports betting thing, 
betting was something that Disney historically shunned. It didn't, uh, you know, license its, its Marvel superheroes to slot machines. Didn't allow uh, them on the uh, cruise ships. This was a turnaround a few years ago under the previous CEO, Bob Chapek. He said, no, you know, we really can use the ESPN brand in sports betting. But he never got a deal done. There were a lot of talks. And so this is one that Iger finally did close, and probably at the last minute, because the sports betting market has already pretty much consolidated around a few players. All right, Bloomberg's Chris Palmieri. It's going to be a busy afternoon for both you and I with Disney earnings. It's interesting, the stock's softer, half a percentage point in the session, but it's basically flat year-to-date, really underperforming the S&P 500. Do the earnings change that going forward? Join us in 24 hours' time. So that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Recap everything on the podcast, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on the Bloomberg Terminal. From here in San Francisco, this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.